You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in Lexington, Kentucky, and we would love to see you join God's restoring work of love in your life. You can find out more about us at restorationlex.com slash welcome. There's helpful links about how you can grow, how you can serve, and be good news in our city. Thanks for listening. I'm sharing this morning as we continue into a series we started last Sunday. It's about one of the most foundational truths I believe that we can find in the Scriptures. And it's a truth that I would argue is overlooked often. It is often undervalued, and it's quite often unapplied. And I think this truth speaks to this understanding of God and this understanding of ourselves and our neighbors that if we apply this, if we see this for what it is, it changes the fabric of how we live our lives. The truth is this, that you and I are made in the image of God. Last week, we began to unpack what that statement means because it's kind of out there. We've heard it, but we don't always press into what something like that truly means. The Hebrew word there that we see in Genesis chapter 1 is this word selim, this word image. And in almost every other instance in the Old Testament, it's referring to an idol, which is strange because idols in the Bible are not good things, right? Their they're idols are, are, are what we build as a stand-in for God. But in a very big switch, God, instead of, or us, instead of making God in our image, God makes us in His image. In the ancient world, what you would do is you would make this idol and you would st- set them up as a stand-in, a physical representation of, of a ruler or a king or a deity that, that represented their identity and their authority in the world. And so when you had these selims or these idols, they were present. And wherever they were present, that's where the king or the ruler or the deity reigned. So in the same way, these idols would be taken into temples and they would be consecrated. And in these temples, they would be a physical representation of the presence of God where they were. That's what is being implied here in Genesis 1, that we are as image bearers of God physical representations of His reign and His rule in this world. We are His presence in the world around us. So when the Bible tells us that we're images of God, it's speaking to something that I believe is profoundly important. We were made to be these living reflections of God's identity and His authority in the world. Our story, then, in this is it's unique. Instead of making us formed into the image of the God that we think He should be, God forms us into the people with intentionality and with intimacy, right? I'm up here on this stage, and I know normally I'm a little closer to you, so you got to talk to me today, okay? you got to respond back. I need, some, I need some people in here. Can we say hi? Hi. All right, good. We're here. Let's, let's talk. So this restoration is where this gospel of ours that we believe begins. I I was taught, when I was growing up in church, I was taught that the gospel begins with sin, right? Share the gospel with me. All right, it starts here. You're a sinner. That's what I was told. That's what a lot of us were told, that when we start to share the gospel, it begins with sin. But as we saw last week, the Bible does not begin with sin, The Bible begins with wholeness. And in the same way, my friends, the Bible and the gospel itself begins not with our sin. It begins with our wholeness. 
In reality, we can't even begin to talk about sin if we don't have clarity about what comes before sin, about what was formed in us before sin entered the picture. As image bearers of God, we need to know, we need to start with the fact that we did not begin with brokenness. God formed us in and for wholeness. Scott McKnight, he writes that nothing in the Bible makes sense if one does not begin with the Garden of Eden as a life of oneness. Human beings in union with God and, and communion with self, with one another, and with the world around them. Life is about oneness. Oneness with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the whole world. You and I were made for perfect communion. We see this here on the screen. We're made for communion not only with God. We're made for communion with ourselves, communion with others, and with creation. When we were formed by God, we were formed for this shalom. This is that Hebrew word of peace and wholeness. Usually that's what it's translated as. It's just simply peace. But shalom is far, far bigger than just the lack of conflict. Shalom is a world where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Shalom is the world as your soul is longing for right now. You know that ache you feel when you watch the news, when you experience brokenness in relationships and you say, this is not what it should be. That ache is for the wholeness, the shalom of God in our world. But that's not the world we find ourselves in. So if we stay here in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we miss how the story continues, how we understand our image of God nature in light of a very, very broken world with very, very broken relationships. And so with that in mind, we move to the part of our story where we do see and understand why things are broken. Genesis chapter 3. Look with me here on the screen starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Side note, in Genesis 2, God does not say, and you must not touch it. He only says don't eat it. Satan is really happy for you to add more religion into your life. He's really happy for you to add to the rules, to add to the oppression, add to the foundation of your guilt and shame. He's okay with that. It continues, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and now, notice the first four words we saw in these scriptures here. It says, did God really say? Did God really say? At the heart of our humanity, there is a question that you are wrestling with, whether you recognize it or not. Can we trust the one who made us? Can we trust the word and the goodness of the one who made us? Is he truly good? This is what the serpent want, wants Eve to believe, that God ultimately may be good, but God is withholding some good from you. He's withholding something from you. 
So if you want the whole thing, if you want the fullness of life as it should be, you got to go get it for yourself, sis. you got to go reach after it yourself. And look what he promises. This is what the serpent says to Eve is the promise. If you do this, he knows this, God knows this, but if you take a bite of that, you will be like God. Here's the thing, though. They're already image bearers, meaning what? You are already like God. You are already like God. My friend Matt Tebby speaks to this perfectly. He says, sin at its core is fed by the lie that we have to hustle for something we already have. That's what's happening right here in Genesis 3. And it's happening in and through our lives as we encounter sin and temptation. We believe the lie that God ultimately is withholding some good from us. And even though you and I are fearfully and wonderfully made, we set off on the project of making ourselves. Of trading being made for being the maker ourselves. And what we're doing in that, whether we realize it or not, is we're putting ourselves in the place of God. We're trying to create for ourselves what we have already been declared to be. Sin is grasping after, hustling after that which you already have been given in God. And this turning away from the maker to try to be the maker ourselves turning away from the God who formed us. This is what we call sin. Scott McKnight, again, he describes sin as this move, what we talked about, oneness. He describes it as a move from oneness to otherness. He writes this. He says, sin is this cracked relationship of otherness with God, with ourself, with others, and with the world. So to return to the visual we had here earlier on the screen, what we see is that nothing is absent, but the relationships that we were made for in wholeness are now experiencing brokenness. Suddenly God, He's not just a loving Father, He is the barrier to my power, to my self-sufficiency and self-fulfillment. Suddenly my neighbors, as I look out at my neighbors, they're not my partners in flourishing in this world. They're not those I've been called to love. They're my competition. They're the one that's standing in the way of getting what I need to be to become who I want to be. Suddenly, when I look in the mirror, I don't see one who is loved by God. I see someone who's never going to measure up. I see someone who is never going to be worthy of love. And suddenly, when I look at creation, I see not a gift that I've been given to steward. I've been, I, I see this resource that I can exploit for whatever I desire. Where there was oneness, there is now otherness. Where there was wholeness, there is now brokenness. Here's why understanding this is really important for us. If we simply see sin as just the product of our individual choices in our individual lives, unimpacted in every other arena of our story, we will fail to grasp both the gravity of what sin is, but also at the same time the enormity of what the gospel actually does in our story. We can't miss this. Now, is sin the product of our choices? Yes. Yes. 
of course. But at the same time, sin is also something so much larger and bigger than just what happens in our choice. Rich Velotis puts it this way. He says, sin is not just something that we do. It is a power that we're under. It's not just the, the choices that we're making. It's why we continue to return to those choices. And even more, as we see often in addiction, why brokenness often moves us beyond our choices into patterns of our lives that feel impossible to overcome. Author and philosopher James K.A. Smith has written on this. He says, to recognize this is to appreciate something about the mechanics of temptation. Not all sins are decisions. Because we tend to be intellectualists who assume that we are thinking things we construe temptation and sin accordingly. We think temptation is an intellectual reality where some idea is presented to us that we then think about and make a conscious choice to pursue or not. But once you realize that we are not just thinking things, but creatures of habit, you'll then realize that temptation isn't just about bad ideas or wrong decisions. It's often a factor of deformation and wrongly ordered habits. I would imagine you've probably felt what it feels like to have a sense of brokenness that you can't seem to break, to have a pattern, a habit, a temptation that you can't seem to overcome. As, as Paul says in Romans 7, you do what you do not want to do. Chances are you have known that feeling. And when we see that, when we see the gravity of sin not just being an individual choice, but often being the patterns that form in our life that not just impact our relationship vertically with God, but also our relationships with others, with our neighbors, and also the relationship we even have with how we see ourselves, and also the relationship we have with creation itself, you see why you need more than Christian self-improvement. You see why you need more than best practices and good ideas of how to be a better person. You and I, when we see the gravity of what has been wrought in and around us, we see the need for salvation. I need more than better ideas. I need more than self-actualization. I need the gospel to move in me in a way that restores what was broken. I need something that doesn't come from inside me. I need something that comes from outside of me to come to move into who I am. Now, I want to pause here because it's important to acknowledge how this idea of sin has often been used, though, as a weapon, right? Sin is easily used in the hands of often well-meaning, but unwise people as a weapon against others. Several times over the years, someone's come to me and said, you need to preach more about sin. And I usually say, okay, I will, and I'll start with yours. And like, oh, wait, well, it's easy to talk about their sin, right? Listen, I could grow a way bigger church right now if I got up here and made my main platform everybody else's sin. Can I be real? I could grow a way bigger church. I could fill this room up just on the idea of how bad they are. But that's not what I'm called to do. 
And that's not the gospel you're called to believe. I'm not going to weaponize sin against others. What happens is, in this idea of sinfulness, is something that is not often explicitly said, but is often implicitly believed. It goes something like this. Sinfulness means worthlessness. In other words, my sin nature, in that I have fallen short of the glory of God, as Romans says, this, this worth that I had as an image bearer as I sin is lost, is removed. And because there's so many truncated, incomplete forms of the gospel that we have been given in this world that focuses more on sin than on Jesus, so many of us start with the idea that Christianity begins with your worthlessness, with you being worthless in the eyes of God. And if my faith starts with my worthlessness, every time I sin, I'm reminded of how worthless I am over and over and over again, which means then that my worth in the eyes of God ebbs and flows with how good or bad I am. So when I'm good, I'm worthy, and I'm proud. But when I fail and when I falter, I feel worthless. So maybe the question we need to ask is we look at the reality and theology of sin is who is God when I'm at my worst? Because I guarantee you, whether it's on the surface and you know this or not, you're going to come to a point in your journey, if you haven't already, when you have felt like you are at your worst. And the question becomes then, what is God like at my worst? Who is God when I fail and I falter, when I have run headlong against everything that makes me whole? What is He actually like in those moments? Now, to answer this question, you could look at a lot of different places in the Scriptures, but I, I say first, we always look to Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the hermeneutic of the whole Bible. Jesus is how we come to see what God is like. And Jesus, He tells this now famous story in Luke chapter 15 that you've probably heard before. In this story, there is a son who comes to his father, and he asks for his inheritance. Now, to modern ears, that sounds strange. To the time of Jesus, people listening to this for the first time, this was scandalous and utterly offensive because it's like saying, Father, I'm okay if you're just dead. I'd just rather you be dead because then I just get the stuff. So give me your inheritance. And shockingly, the Father does this. But by doing this, by saying, Father, I, I would be okay if you would just be dead and I get my stuff. What this son is doing is not just taking the material wealth from his father. He is renouncing his identity. He is renouncing his authority as a son. In a very communal, collectivist, family-oriented society, this would have been the most offensive thing this man could have done. Now, he takes this inheritance, and the Bible says he blows it. He, 
He spends it on pleasure and decadence. And eventually, as we all do, he hits rock bottom. He has nothing to eat but pig slop and nothing to show for his arrogance. Now, when it says pig slop, this is a kosher people. Pigs were unclean. So not only is he with the unclean, he's eating what the unclean eats. This is how low his low is. So he strikes up this plan. He says, I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to ask to work as a servant. Because maybe I could kind of work off some of my debt. I mean, I've cost him so much money already. And maybe in just a small part, I can earn back some bit of dignity of how I have ran my life into the ground. So this is his plan. He sets off. He's ready. He's probably rehearsing this speech in his mind about how his shame has caused so much grief for his father and how he has to live as a failure for the rest of his life. That's something. So he strikes up this plan and he goes back. Now in Luke 15, it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to save his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now, now he is found. So he began to celebrate. Celebrate like them. Here's what the prodigal learned in this moment and what I pray we can see today. This is what God is like in our worst. God is like a father who never allows his son to believe his worth is lost, even at his worst. And instead of making him live into cycles of shame for the rest of his life, opens his arm, not just bringing him back as a servant, but celebrating his reality as a son. The father was always there aching with love for who his sons and daughters are, receiving them back. Now, does this father in this story minimize the sin. Well, no, we can't say that. Surely not. By, by showing this compassion, does the father in this moment say, well, I guess all that stuff is okay. No. The father in this moment looks at his son, and he bears the cost of his shame. The father absorbs within himself all of the cost of his sin. The father in himself, for the rest of his life probably, absorbed the shame of this son's sin. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 21 says, God made him who knew no, knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What we see on the cross, my friends, what we see on the cross is what the Father in the story has done. He has borne the cost for us. He has borne our shame for us once and for all. For too many years, I lived my life, and I would bet you did too, 
living as if your worth ebbed and flowed every single time you messed up. And what good news we have today. What good news worth celebrating. What good news worth walking out this door this morning and walking in there with that DJ and dancing your butt off because it's worth celebrating is that your worth is never lost at your worst. Your worth is never lost when you mess up. But God, in His love, sent His Son to bear the weight of your sin, the power and the penalty once and for all. As Hannah comes, I want to close with one last quote and pray for us as we move into a time of communion. We have elements here. We had some in the lobby back there too. We encourage you to celebrate as we do this. This quote from Henry Nouwen, he says, For most of my life I have struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. I've tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, pray away, pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I failed many times, but I always tried again, even when I, clo I was close to despair. Now I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, and to love me. The question is not how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by Him? The question is not how am I to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by Him? And finally, the question is not how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? God is looking into the distance from me, trying to find me, and longing to bring me home. Father, what I pray this morning for us is that as we have walked into a room like this, aware with the weight of our own brokenness, maybe feeling distant from you, maybe feeling the weight of a broken relationship, maybe feeling the weight, the brokenness we feel within ourselves, whatever that may be this morning, may we take these elements as we respond to you in remembrance we have never lost our worth, but that by your worthiness, Christ, you have given us your salvation, you have given us your righteousness, and we take these elements as sons and daughters.